Welcome to Think Orphan, the podcast for orphan excellence. Real talk with real people navigating the global orphan crisis. Let's join your hosts, Phil Dark and Dr. Karen Hutchison. Hey guys, welcome to the Think Orphan podcast. This is Dr. Karen. Thanks for joining us today. Phil, who, who do we have on the show today? Yeah, today we have Amanda Cox. She is a woman with a whole lot of wisdom. She has worked with Lumos, Faith to Action Initiative, Hope, Hope and Homes for Children. And she's going to help us really understand kind of the landscape today of what's going on um, around the world with uh, deinstitutionalization, with some of the studies that are, that are happening and have happened um, really on the, the culture of orphanages, particularly in Haiti where she did a lot of work in the last few years. Um, but really those, those issues that apply to Haiti, as you'll find out, and as you pro- a lot of you probably already know, apply to most of the countries that we're talking about around the world. And so this is definitely time to pull up a chair, pull up, uh, pull out a notebook and a, and a pen and, and uh, take some good notes on this and just really, really thinking about how you can engage these issues um, in, uh, in great ways as you're working to love orphan and vulnerable children. So, and, and while you're at it, if you could just go and uh, rate and review the, the show on iTunes, that's something that we're definitely uh, appreciating and, and hoping that you'll do and engage with us more. We're getting more and more comments. Um, emailed to us on Facebook, however else you want to engage us. There's a few different ways and you can do that. So we'd appreciate that. And one last thing, as we've talked about uh, a little bit over the last few weeks, is if you want to help us financially as a podcast, you can do that at Providence World. Just go to the giving tab and, and there's a way you can give there to the podcast. So without more, here goes Amanda Cox. Hope you enjoy it. So Amanda, it is so great to have you here today. We're here at CAFO Summit uh, 2017 here in Nashville. And, you know, we've been talking a little bit over the last couple months and I'm, I'm excited to sit across from you and be able to talk to you about what Lumos is doing. Um, and you're, you're part of that. And really, let's start out though. I know a lot of the people listening around the world don't know you, don't know your story. Um, let's briefly share that with them and just kind of who you are. Sure. It's really nice to be here too. It's nice to meet you in person finally after all our talks on the phone. So I'm Amanda Cox. Right now, I am the head of Latin America and Caribbean for Lumos Foundation, uh, which is a global children's charity out of the UK, founded by J.K. Rowling. But I have a long history with CAFO, and so it's really fun to be here in person. I uh, was the Faith to Action Initiative coordinator from 2008, 2012. So I was here, I was at the first ever CAFO back Mm -hmm. in Fort Lauderdale in 2008. And it is really fun to see how far CAFO has come, how big it's grown, how passionate all of the members are, and just how advanced the workshops are. Um, It seems that the audience has come such a long way and there's so much skill and talent here. So it's very fun to be able to be here and uh, just meet everyone again. Right. Yeah. And, and with Lumos, you know, you got involved with them a couple of years ago and you're doing some great work around the world. Can you share a little bit about what Lumos is doing and um, just really how it's kind of um, evolved over the years and really taken on some pretty big issues um, that are going on around the world? Sure. Can I tell you a little bit first about how I came to be interested in Absolutely. this field of work? Absolutely. Um, no. Yeah, absolutely. I'd love to hear that. Great. Because it's very personal for me. Um, And I do come at it with a Christian perspective, which is different than um, maybe just the more secular development perspective. 
So when I was 16, I traveled to a migrant camp in Mexico for my first ever mission trip. And we worked with children that were left alone all day while their children worked in the uh, while their parents worked in the fields and they were age 11 and under. And when it was time for our team to leave and our bus was pulling away and driving back to Minnesota, 64 hours, um, I just felt like I couldn't leave. And this little girl had given me her bracelet and um, I saw a lot in her eyes, like a real hope that somebody would intervene for her and somebody would stand up for her rights to um, maybe not be the sole caretaker of all the little children left alone in this camp. And I became just very passionate about children's rights. And so I was 16 and I thought that probably the best way for me to really work in this field would be to open an orphanage. And so all through college, I volunteered in orphanages and I had the experience of working in um, Latin America in government orphanages and in private um, Christian run orphanages. And I exited college having had that experience and having come to know children that were raised in these settings and feeling like there's no way I think that's a best plan for a child's life. There were kids that would tell me before they went to sleep, I miss my mommy. And um, I was always very nurturing and very touched by this. And um, it touched me on a human level. So I was never able to separate myself and feel like from a distance, well, this is providing for the children's education and it's providing them food. I felt very um, much in touch with their desire for family. And so I left college and decided to pursue a degree in international development so that I could work um, with faith-based or secular organizations that were working to improve um, the situation of children living in orphanages. And so that's what I've always done my whole career. And I really feel like God called me to it at a very early age. Mm. Yeah, no, that's, that's important. I'm, I'm glad that you, uh, you shared that with us because I think that gives a good insight into what you're doing today and how, how you're doing yeah. what you're doing. Um, so yeah, so now can we just kind of take it to that, to that global that you are yes. now a part of an organization that, mm -hmm. that is doing, you know, as you said, you came through faith to action, mm -hmm. which now our, our good friend, mutual friend, Sarah Gasserik, who mm -hmm. will be on this show when, when, <laughs> when I can finally get into her schedule and get on, on her on here, I know that she'll be a great help as well, but you came through faith to action and now with Lumos and, and I know we're going to get into some of the specifics of a couple of things Lumos is doing, but can you just now give kind of the bigger overview and how people can learn more and read a lot of the stuff that we're going to be talking about today, where the website is and things like that. Sure. Absolutely. So I have been a long admirer of Lumos, um, of their work in Eastern Europe. I'm sure that a lot of your listeners have grew up or, um, in their adult years saw images of children living in cages, kind of caged cribs in Romania and other Eastern European countries, um, especially in the 1980s. And so of course I was always watching those videos with interest as well when I was a child. And um, as Lumos, about 12 years ago, began working in Eastern Europe, they were working to um, get these children out of these huge institutions and into families and um, guarantee them their rights. And so I was a long admirer, um, a fan of the Harry Potter books, amazed by the fact that J.K. Rowling, who is the author, um, put her own personal passion and money into seeing children freed from these situations and bringing light, which is what Lumos means, light into their world. And so I've had the pleasure of getting to work for Lumos for two years. Um, but prior to coming to work for Lumos, they worked for about 10 years in Eastern Europe in several countries, helping to achieve what we call a tipping point, which is the point at which the government and the funding that follows the government is no longer going into institutional care, but is going into families. And that being family preservation, foster care, 
resident, small residential homes, therapeutic care, reunification, care for ch- children with special needs, who a lot of people in Eastern Europe felt would always need to live in big box institutions. And so once that tipping point was achieved in Eastern Europe, Lumos decided to look globally. Where could their work be used next and where could they take this model of deinstitutionalization? And that led them to look at Haiti. And when they began working in Haiti, that's when they hired me because that's where our uh, my personal and professional interest right now intersects with what Lumos is doing. Yeah, so tell me a little bit more about that. So why Haiti? What, what's going on there right. um, that is is really what the natural next step, so to speak, or maybe not the natural, but the next mm-hmm. step that was determined um, by Lumos to go from Eastern Europe to Haiti, which is so different. Right. You can look all over the world and, and they out of the whole world, they chose Haiti. And so let me tell you a little bit about Haiti. I'm very passionate about Haiti. I'm sure anyone listening who works in Haiti also feels the same, that there is a huge need. Haiti is very small. I believe it's about the size of Delaware, and it has, in that tiny country, there are 32,000 children living in orphanages. Many of them are there because after the earthquake of 2010, very well-meaning donors built orphanages, and those orphanages proliferated throughout the country. And there are now over 760 that we know of. There are probably hundreds more that we don't even know of throughout the country. And so um, what's happened is, a culture of orphanage care has been established in this country and it is continuing to proliferate. And so we at Lumos felt um, that A, there is a real interest on the part of the government to have us come and help them because one of their core priorities besides addressing violence against children is addressing um, institutionalization. They really wanna turn this around. There's a passion for family in Haiti and they don't they don't necessarily want their children to be growing up in orphanages. and so. Um, anyway, government interest, um, a tremendous problem. And the other issue that attracted us to Haiti was this situation where there are a lot of foreigners involved in Haiti. In some countries in the world, there are not as many, and you're just dealing with the government. In Eastern Europe, for example, really, it's just Lumos working with the government. Um, in Haiti, there are um, so many Americans attracted to Haiti, and especially churches and faith-based groups, because of the proximity, it's very close, it's very easy flight, it's about a 90 minute flight from Miami. Um, and so I, I think we felt it was a very challenging place to work, but if we could make it work there and show that children could be brought out of orphanages and into families, we could kind of make it work anywhere, right? You could make the argument anywhere if we could Absolutely. make it work in Haiti. Yeah, no, that, that makes sense, that makes sense. And and you talked a little bit about that with a, with a lot of the money, and I know that that a lot of that are churches, a lot of that are the people listening to this um, to this podcast. Really, are, are part of. The, I mean, I know a lot of people are in Haiti, working in Haiti. We've had a couple other folks who are working in Haiti. You probably know them, Kent Anon and Troy Livesay have been on this show, and I love those guys, and they're doing some phenomenal work. But with that comes a lot of money going in. And as we know, where there's money, there's people that are going to be coming in. There's going to be corruption. There's going to be other issues. So what have you seen so far with um, the work that, that you've done, the work that Lumos has done? I know there's been a great um, publication that came out, a uh, study that uh, I think it was last year um, that a couple of our guests have, have already recommended. So can you just tell us about that work to date and uh, really what, what you've learned so far? Absolutely. So we started working in Haiti two and a half years ago, and I've been involved almost since the beginning um, advising the Haiti program. I don't do any of the on the ground work because we have great Haitian social workers and psychologists and a whole team um, that are culturally competent to work with children. 
but I know very intimately what's going on in Haiti. So we have some interesting findings in Haiti. Um, I'll just share a couple of with you. Uh, one is that the vast majority of children are in orphanages in Haiti because of poverty, lack of access to education, and lack of health care. That's sort of an that's an obvious. That happens in a lot of countries around the world. And so that didn't surprise us at all. That wasn't a huge revelation. It's a sad revelation because these children, um, most of them have living family. Uh, they have family willing to take them back, but they're in for this set of circumstances. They're in these orphanages. Not hugely surprising. What has surprised me personally has been the situation of trafficking related to orphanages. This has been a huge finding for us. And if anyone is interested in a kind of a deep dive into that, we have a publication called Orphanage Entrepreneurs, The Trafficking of Haiti's Invisible Children. And I contributed to that. Um, and I'll tell you that my name is not even in it because trafficking is so dangerous. It is such a corruption in Haiti um, that you could, um, there have been instances where people have been shot for talking about hmm. trafficking and crime related to children in Haiti. And so um, we're trying to flush something out of the darkness and bring it into the light. And I feel like the Christian audience will really, your audience really be interested in this because it's something that's very hidden. It is not on the surface. A lot of people look at orphanages and think this is a beautiful, great thing that children look reasonably well cared for. What we have found in every institution that we have worked in so far in Haiti, and we have a lot of evidence that it's going on in the institutions we haven't worked with, is that there's a pattern. There's a pattern of corruption that has led to trafficking. And that is um, that an orphanage director feels that they need to keep their orphanage full in order to fundraise. Um, and then they use that profit for their personal gain instead of for the welfare of the children. And it is a cycle that has produced a lot of coercion in the local com communities. What I mean by coercion is that orphanage directors actually hire people that they know to go out into the community and to either pay families to give them their children or to promise the families the children will be better off in the orphanage and convince them that the, the children will have a very high quality of education, very high quality of care. They then bring them into the orphanage and the families then at that point generally cannot get the children back out. We have a lot of cases uh, where families are asked to pay $200 or more to get their child back out. And that's just unreasonable amount of money that they could never afford. What we are trying to do is convince the international community to start calling this trafficking because it meets the definition of trafficking. Child trafficking is the movement of children for the purpose of exploitation. And if you're thinking about holding a child in an orphanage to raise money off them or to exploit them sexually or for labor, for any form, that is human trafficking, that is child trafficking. And so we're really seeing this throughout every institution we've worked in and trying to really raise awareness um, that this is a huge problem in Haiti. Absolutely. And, and, and I, couple things I want to, there's so much we could unpack there. We're going to unpack a little bit of that. First thing I want to do though, before we do anything, because all of this is unpacked in that report. Mm -hmm. And I know that the people can get it online. Can you share with where people can get it? We'll link to this in the show notes, but for those of you who, you know, don't necessarily want to go to the show notes, can you just share us where we're, where we're at? Sure. It's we are Lumos. So W E A R E L U M O S dot org. And it's in the resources section. It's a very actually short report. It is not hard to read. Um, it's really easy reading, really clear cut. I recommend anyone just downloading it and 
uh, skim through it. And I think you'll be very interested. Yeah. I, I, I strongly recommend that too. I, I was able to sit down and read it. I recommend you don't skim through it. I recommend (laughs) that you actually really dive into it and understand it because it's not just in Haiti either. This is going on all around the world. And what I want to really hear from you is to kind of go beyond the report a little bit. I know it's in the report a little bit, but what can we do about it? That's a really good question. And I'm so glad you asked it because I think the Christian audience, the faith-based audience has the possibility to completely transform this situation. The dollars that are being chased by the corrupt orphanages and the the people involved in trafficking corruption in Haiti, they are chasing American dollars. And we have done research over the past two and a half years that has now is going to be published soon. It has demonstrated the very premise that we believed from the beginning, but we wanted to just make sure this was true, is that the vast majority of money coming to Haiti is from U.S. faith-based donors. We um, have documented minimum 70 million a year not going to all causes in Haiti is just going to orphanage care in Haiti from faith-based donors. 70 million is shocking. It's in the top five of all donors of any cause in Haiti, including international foreign aid into Haiti. So it is a shocking number. And that is just the dollars you can track by looking at um, financial reporting that does not include the cash that volunteers bring, does not include the the fees charged to people on mission trips. It does not include any in-kind donations, backpacks, school fees, all the other ways that people support in Haiti. So this 70 million is making... um, well, it's funding the orphanage industry in Haiti, and it is making a lot of corrupt people very, very rich. Um, And a lot of faith-based donors in the United States, they simply don't know what they've gotten themselves into. If you're not there on a daily basis in Haiti, watching how the kids are fed, how are they being cared for? If you're not making visits that are unannounced so that nobody can prepare, nobody can hide evidence of abuse or clean the situation up, then you really have no clue. You're you're basing you know the value of that orphanage and how well your money is being spent on lovely pictures, maybe a nice website, really sad calls from your contact in Haiti that you've met and you have made a heart connection with, but maybe have no idea what that person's background is. So I really believe that the faith community can use that money for good and can really make a change in this. If donors demand a change, that their dollars are not used for poor quality orphanage care in Haiti, but rather they're using that money to build up a foster care program in Haiti so that children can live with families, or they're using that money to do microloans for families so that a family can make a living and stay together and keep their child, or if they're using that money to fund education. Education is a great area to put your money in because it costs money to go to school in Haiti. It's not free. Um, So there's so many ways I don't ever want to see a church or faith-based group take their money out of Haiti because they're scared, because they hear trafficking, because they get nervous, because they're, they don't make enough visits. So they're not quite sure how their money's used. Don't take your money away. Get more involved. Use, believe your volunteers that have seen scary things. Believe the reports we're telling you because we're there. Our team's there. Our team knows what's going on. Other teams, people that are there every day know what's going on. Um, believe that you can make a huge difference with that amount of money. I will tell you that I think 70 million a year could fund a foster home for every single child that's in an orphanage in Haiti right now for 32,000 children. Mm. Um, Foster care is very cheap. 
it does not take a lot to fund a foster home. So I could talk forever yeah, about no, this, I but I'm tell, so you're passionate. Like, your right now. I'm just going to stop. <laughs> okay. No, no, and I, I will, I do. And again, there is so much there. And I also don't want to pretend like the answer is just, we give our money somewhere else. Cause there are institutional systemic issues in Haiti as well. Yes. Right. And I know that you know those and I, we could again, spend days talking about all of them in detail, but can you just go through some of the real issues that are kind of, that are systemic, they're governmental, that are just the system in there. That's not even just governmental, but the way things have been run for a decade and the relief and kind of what Ficker talks about in Helping Hurts and all these issues. Just what are some of the real kind of key things that are also present that we can also get in the fray on and, and really come in and how can we advocate for change in government? How can we advocate for these things? And then we know it's going to take a step-by-step approach, but can you just share with us some of those ways that we as the church, but also we as just advocates for the children's lives can get involved in those different ways? Sure. One systemic problem that I've seen as I've worked in Haiti involves groups not talking to one another. Mm. So people point the finger a lot at government. Government's corrupt. Government does this, government does that. But when we began working in Haiti, one of my first things that I did was go around and meet with everyone who was working with children. Let's Mm. just find out, let's take the temperature. Who's doing what? Faith-based, non-faith-based. Nobody knew what anyone else was doing. Nobody knew how much money they had given to support a government program or how much another group was doing for, you know, the educate. Nobody knew that one organization was funding 50,000 children to go to school across the country and they could enroll them in that program. And Mm -hmm. so people were at odds, it felt like, um, cross purposes and nobody knew what the right hand was doing if they were the left hand. Right. feel like anyone who's passionate about Haiti needs to get involved in a bigger network. Find out what others are doing because a lot is going on in Haiti. A lot of people are working there. There's little programs, there's big programs, but networks need to be formed. And so one network that is formed that I know of is a faith-based network called Haiti One. Um, And I believe Mission of Hope is kind of the leader of that group. And I'm speaking at their conference in Haiti on May 19th. So if you're going to be in Haiti and coming to the Haiti One conference, I will be speaking in the morning. So that's one systemic problem. Just not enough talking, not enough sharing of best practice and learning from one another. Um, another problem is definitely the government of Haiti is not well-funded. Uh, they don't have a large enough budget. The child welfare department is dependent on external donors instead of their own budget. So they tend to follow what are you know the priorities of those external funders. I would say anyone who's interested in government type advocacy needs to advocate with the U.S. government to put our funding, our foreign aid that goes through USAID towards family-based care, deinstitutionalization, the building up of alternative care services in Haiti. Governments have to hear from their constituents Mm -hmm. in order to know where to best place their funding. And so we work a lot in that area. Lumos does a lot of advocacy with the European Union and with the U.S. government. Um, to help them better prioritize where they fund for children globally. And then there's maybe just one big area that everyone knows about in Haiti is that there's constant chronic upheaval in society. Mm -hmm. There are earthquakes. There was a hurricane this fall that just devastated the South and impacted 50 orphanages, um, 2000 children in the orphanages, hundreds and thousands of families, um, displaced children out of schools. And then now we've just had repeat flooding in that same area in the last few weeks. Uh, It is a very unstable, unfortunately, country. There are political upheavals, coups, assassinations, uh, demonstrations in the street. 
So it's a complex place to work. And what we know from years of research is that the more complex the country, the more vulnerable the children are Mm -hmm. because Mm -hmm. answers come in quickly that are not always in their best interest. So there are a lot of systemic problems in Haiti, but people who are really dug in and working there and working for children, they know that this is just part of the context and you must plan for worst case scenarios. Right. Pray for the best, but plan for the worst. Yeah, absolutely. And, and I just want to touch on one other area, and then I want to go from kind of specific to general, back to general with, with Lumos a little bit. But the other thing that I know you've you've talked to me about is just really the the difficulties with reporting and prosecuting the trafficking, going back to the trafficking that we talked about a little bit earlier. And it's hard everywhere. But in you know, a country like Haiti, it's even harder a lot of times. And can you just speak to that a little bit, the, the efforts that are, hand, handing on, are going on right now, the committee that's going on, but why it's so challenging? And you kind of alluded to it earlier, just your name not being on the report, right? right? I mean, <laughs> there's that. So can you go yeah. a little bit deeper into that? Sure. One way that um, this trafficking system has remained in place for so long and has been so well hidden is because of corruption. People are paid off to turn a blind eye and people can be hurt, maimed, threatened, murdered if they do continue to stand up for justice in Haiti. We at Lumos believe very strongly in capacitating and empowering um, government systems to do their job. And so a couple of years ago, a committee was formed, um, an anti-trafficking committee, it's called the TIP Commission. And we really believe strongly in this committee and have been supporting them. Um, they do their work without pay. They're different government officials that have come together and the leader is an excellent person. Their job is to uh, prosecute traffickers and to really look after this situation and begin, uh, side note, Haiti ranks number eight on the modern slavery index globally. Mm. When you're talking about modern slavery, you're talking about a lot of kids. The worst form of trafficking in Haiti is child trafficking. It's the biggest form of trafficking. I think Haiti right now um, is has a tier three ranking by the U.S., which is our highest level sanctions, basically, against a country mm-hmm. for human trafficking. Um, so you can so you see that globally, we all know this is a giant problem in Haiti. Domestically within Haiti, everyone's terrified to talk about it because they're fearful of of the repercussions. Mm -hmm. So this anti-trafficking committee has been running for about two years um, and we've been supporting them to gather. We've been advising them, hiring consultants for them. How do you gather evidence against people that are trafficking children through orphanages? We know who the bad people are, but how do you gather the correct evidence? How do you work carefully with children not to traumatize them, but to be able to provide their story correctly so that you have the right evidence? And how do you move that through a judicial system that is can be very corrupt and is very difficult to work within? So this is something we're very hopeful is that we'll see the first prosecution in the next year or so. Um, and I think with one successful prosecution, we'll begin to see a little bit more fear on the part of the people who are um, pre- pretending to be these pastors and orphanage directors who right. are actually very corrupt people. Right. So this is, yes, this is a big it's challenge massive. in Haiti. Anyone that works there will tell you when we, when I say things to people like prosecution of orphanage directors, they get <gasps> nervous, nervous. It's very yeah. scary for people. So we pr- I pray, honestly, I pray for our team all the time that our team, our Lumos team will be safe um, and 
pray that we can see some actual prosecutions and see the judicial system begin to work again. Yeah, no, that's, that's, that's real good. I mean, that, and that's the thing is it's, it's so massive. I think it could be so daunting and it could really paralyze. And so what's, what's one thing, one thing that everyone can do? Um, you know, cause I, I, there was a book that, uh, I know it's a really hard question. Not, I mean, <laughs> me not, but most people can do really just to get involved. Is there, is there advocacy, whether it was, cause it's so daunting when you look at trafficking, we know we're not gonna go rescue a kid from a brothel tomorrow. You know, you're not gonna, and it's not that simple in Haiti either. It's so, no. it's not, it's not cut and dry. There's rest of situation. There's the orphanages. There's all these different things that are, mm-hmm. that have become really, like you said, it's, it's trafficking. Um, and when you look at that and you say, wow, but I, I, I now it's not as simple as taking your money out of Haiti, like you said, mm-hmm. it's, it's, there's so, it's so nuanced. So is there one thing or even a couple things that like most people in the U.S. could do to get involved and not everyone's going to, but those who are interested rather than, I, well, the last thing I'd want to see is, or is them hearing you talk about this and go, I'm out, <laughs> right? right? You know, because it's so no, easy to do that because it's, it's so much. And I think a lot of people do that though. Yeah, It's so daunting. And you hear a hundred and whatever million orphans and you're like, mm-hmm. I can't do anything about that. So I'm just going to mm-hmm. go hang out at the homeless shelter because that's easy and it's tangible. Mm-hmm. Um, but that's not the answer either. Well, it is for some people. I mean, that's, I'm not going to say that, but you know what I mean? And yep. I hopefully, I hope you know what I mean. Um, is there something that most people can do to get involved? Yes, I have a lot of things I think people could do. <laughs> I think the first is a step back and a reframing. I want everyone to reframe how we think about Haiti because I know I was guilty of this. I first became involved in Haiti actually um, through adopting my son from Haiti. And I was guilty of seeing Haiti as a resource poor, mm, highly impacted by crises place where maybe not enough children had parents. Let's reframe, like let's all as Americans step back. Haiti is our neighbor country. It is very close to us. There there are a lot of Haitians in the United States and vice versa. Let's see them as our partners. Let's not view ourselves as above them in any way. Um, And I, again, I was very guilty of this and I Mm -hmm. have had over the years um, a crisis of conscience really about this and had to learn from people like the Livesays, Troy Livesay. I didn't realize he's your guest. He's our son's godfather. Um, and really learn from people that live there and have learned a lot and love the culture and who ask us to be more humble in relation to Haiti as our neighbors. So the first thing I would ask is that people don't see Haiti as a quick trip, a quick in and out, hug on orphans. Let's get in there and let's get out. Forget about that. You know, let's view it more as if you would like to get involved in Haiti, that you establish in your mindset, a willingness to learn from Haitians that you are willing to make a long-term commitment. Mm-hmm. It doesn't have to be a lot of money and it doesn't have to be a lot of time, but that it's a long-term commitment, yeah, that right. you're not one-off visiting Haiti. Mm-hmm. Haiti gets a lot of visitors. Every time I'm on the plane, I'm surrounded by teams that with shirts that say, you know, love on Haiti and love the orphan. And this passion is great. And yet if they're just there for one week of their whole life, that's a great impact for them. I have had that impact on me of mm-hmm. a one-week trip. But that's not an impact on Haitian children. Right. It, it could possibly even be a negative impact if they're doing mm-hmm. things that are poor practice with children. So I would ask that we all take a step back. We learn. We take a moment to research. If you think that you're doing work in Haiti, that maybe you're not quite sure if actually it's the right thing, um, that you don't get overly stressed about it. Uh, you can feel free to contact Lumos. You can contact um, several different organizations that work in Haiti. 
Uh, there's also the Better Care Network. You can look for resources there, the Faith to Action Initiative. Begin to read, mm-hmm. begin to really think about what are best practices globally and how does that apply to what I know about the Haitian culture? Right. Where can I best meet the needs of children there? And also ground yourself in the understanding that children love their parents and parents love their children. Mm-hmm. There may be terrible poverty involved. There mm-hmm. may be some um, terrible practices involved. But that that is your your goal and your hope for the future of Haiti is that children and families are empowered together right. and that children are raised to become good parents, not raised mm-hmm. outside a family where they, they don't know how to even be part of a family anymore. Right. That you ground yourself in that understanding that every child deserves a family, every family deserves to be together. And that if you want to work in Haiti, that whatever area you work in, whether it's education or health yeah. or society, um, trafficking, that sort of you ground yourself in this love of family and the knowledge that God loves family and God intended us for family. Mm-hmm. If you come at it from that with a humble perspective, I think you can make a world of difference no matter yeah. how much money or time you bring to Haiti. Right. Don't be scared because they are our neighbor. It's a very excellent country to get involved in with a very high need. Mm-hmm. Um, so I guess that's, it, it's not a super tangible no, no, I love it. request, but I love it's it. a request to start over a bit. Absolutely. No. And I think that's so important. And that's a great segue kind of back to the, the general a little bit. Um, I think that that applies everywhere in the world. Yes. Right. It, I mean, it applies in every relationship we have it, with our neighbor. Mm-hmm. It replies when we're doing work anywhere is mm-hmm. get to know people. Yeah. Right. It's about relationship. But sometimes this, we get so grounded in the task that we're doing. Mm-hmm that we almost fear losing our donors, losing mm-hmm. face, losing people's faith in us. If we stop and say, you know what? We need to reprioritize. We've learned better. We need to do better. Yep. It can be very embarrassing. Yeah. It can be very humbling. It can be very awkward to explain to your donors. We work with faith-based groups that are funding the orphanages we're closing. Mm-hmm. And I've had some very awkward conversations because those groups don't know how to explain to their sponsors. Oh, we, this orphanage is closed. Right. These children were abused. We'd, how do you explain that to people that have been in their lives for many years funding your work? Right. Absolutely. It's not your fault, but if you don't stop, you're contributing. Yes, absolutely. So yeah, it's, it's no, absolutely. And, 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 I, and that's something that we talk a lot about on the show is it's about relationship. And, and it's something that I talk to people all the time. They said, you know, what are we going to do? What are we going to do? What are we going to do? And I'm like, who are you going to be? Mm. Who are you going to be? And, you know, that's something that I think is so, and when you think about that, it's, you don't know until you know who you're with, you know, and you're going to be who you are. You have your identity, you have who you are, but in every relationship, you have a different role, right? With my wife, I'm different. With my kids, I'm different. With, with you on, in a podcast interview, it's different when I go to, and so around the world, I hope everyone's hearing what Amanda's saying, because it's so important here. Yes, we're talking about Haiti, but this stuff applies everywhere. And, you know, that's what I'm hoping. So I want to go back to the general a little bit. Lumos working in Eastern Europe, working in Haiti, working, you know, to talk and to impact and influence everywhere, right? Something I know a lot of people like to put people into boxes, right? And if there's one thing Lumos has been put into a box on, it's you just want to go down and shut down every orphanage tomorrow. (laughs) Yep. (laughs) Right? And, you know, you've heard it, obviously. (laughs) I can tell in the laugh. I just wanted you to be able to respond to that. Like, that's not what Lumos is looking to do. Can you just speak a little bit to that specific criticism, which you've heard and you know, and it's obviously nuanced a little bit, but there are people who have said that and, and, oh, J.K. Rowling just going out there and doing it. It's like, no, it's not a lone ranger. We're going out and we're, you know, saving the world. It's, it's a long-term play, right? And can you speak to that? 
Sure. Yes. And I can, well, let me start by saying in Eastern Europe, the conditions were so terrible and this was the government responsible for torturing their own children in these giant institutions. I think Lumos's original mission was, yes, let's get these kids out of there. Let's close these down. I mean, it took 10, it takes years and years. So when you say fast, I mean, we're talking many years, but let's close these down as fast as we can and Mm -hmm. build alternatives for these children which meant group, sometimes group homes, independent living, therapeutic care. It it involves a whole system. When we're looking at the rest of the world and we're talking about um, orphanages and institutions that are often run by private donors, we're talking about a bit of a different system. You're not looking at the government and their responsibility towards children. You're looking at private donors. And I think then you have to take it a bit more one-off. Each in Haiti, at least in my experience, you have a whole range of types of care for children. You have big institutions with hundreds of kids that are, children are locked in there with hardly any care. And you have places that are, you know, running therapeutic care where children live for several years in order to get the real care and both spiritual, physical that they need in order to return to any type of family life. And maybe they never will. But you have, you know, those are with intense trained social workers, loving house mothers. So you kind of have this whole range. Our goal is not to go in and slam the doors and throw children out onto streets and close this all down. What we want to see is in the countries that we work where there are private donors, that the private donors are thinking about a whole systemic change and a need for a lot of different types of care for children. So where children are being cared for in huge groups, that you get that smaller, you get that broken down, you get that in much more family-like style care. Right. And I think a lot of faith based groups are really doing a great job at this now. This is a real passion in the faith community is to, you know, get more small group homes going and more therapeutic type care. Um, And yeah, where there's what we call red institutions that are where the children are being sexually abused and exploited and starved and neglected, that we get those closed as fast as possible. And those kids either move to a different orphanage where they're better cared for in the short term, long term, ideally with families. But we all know that's not an immediate possibility in some cases. Um, but in Haiti and in every country, there's a whole range of types of institutions. There's the red ones where they're basically torturing children. Mm-hmm. And there's the green ones where they're giving therapeutic care right. and loving family style care. So our goal is to just see that in every country that there are the best possible options for each child. Every child has a different set of needs. Every child is different. Not there's no one size fits all. And so we just want to see that there's a range of care options, that it's not the first response to every child who might possibly need a placement outside their family is to stick them in an orphanage and sign away their life to that orphanage. They're never reunified. They never have another alternative. They have no plan in place for when they turn 18. We just want to see an end to that. It does not mean slamming the doors of every place that is a residential facility globally. So it's a complex and nuanced process, but we get very excited when we see organizations that are recruiting foster families from churches. Mm-hmm. We get very excited when we see um, placements that are therapeutic, where people are trained to work with the children and the families. I get very excited by Heartline Ministries in Haiti, where they've actually turned from being an orphanage to supporting hundreds of women to give birth in a healthy manner and stay unified with their children throughout their life. And they've only have one family ever not parent their child in their maternity program. Um, I get very excited when I see, um, you know, places that are 
turning more family-like, that they, they recognize that you can't have paid staff just in and out on rotations. Children don't create bonds that way. And so I think there are a lot of really exciting possibilities all along the spectrum of care. Yeah. But if 70 million is going from the U.S. every year into orphanages in Haiti, you will always have corrupt people wanting to build more orphanages and bring in more children from the community to fill them up in order to tap into that money. Absolutely. If that money dries up and all and 70 million or more starts going into all sorts of different types of care that's best for every child, uh, you're just not going to see as much interest. Right. I agree. And, and I think that unfortunately corruption and evil follow money. And, and really that's, do. that's just the reality of our world. Um, okay. We could go on for so much longer. I, I just, I'm, I loved having this conversation with you, but they're all good things have to come to an end at some point, unfortunately. So the last couple questions we ask all our guests, the first one is what have you read, listened to, or watched that has most impacted your thinking on how we can love orphaned and at risk children with excellence? Yeah. In 2012, I think it was, or 2011, Sorry. Nope. Let me back way up. 2006. The Bucharest Early Intervention Study came out at the same time. It launched on the same day in the same place in the same auditorium in D.C. as the Faith to Action Report. These were two totally different reports saying the exact same thing. One was a secular study, the Bucharest study, which looked at children's brain development in orphanages versus in foster care in Bucharest. Um, and it definitively showed that children's brain development um, in orphanage-style care was um, not up to par. It was not acceptable, and that when they, these children were moved into families, into foster homes that were qualified to care for them, their brains began to heal, their brains began to develop the neuron synapses that they need to become um, who they're meant to be. And that was just really powerful because it was science backing what we kind of all felt, but it was science. And I think pe some people really need to see that science. At the same time, faith to action came out and it was the faith community beginning to say, uh, look, we believe orphanages actually are not God's plan for children, that family is. And these two complemented each other so well. And I was in the auditorium when they were both launched. And to me, that was just so impactful that it was a scientific study going along at the same time as the faith community saying, also, this matches up with God's plan for children. So it was a long time ago, 2006, but it was the most impactful Absolutely. situation that I've experienced. Yeah, I think both of those have impacted a lot of people. And because of that, lots and lots of kids' lives. I so, think so. Um, they, I'm very thankful for both of those as well. Can I interrupt for a second and say that the Bucharest Early Intervention Project is, uh, there's a follow-up happening. Oh, okay. It's called EI3. And it's looking more globally. A lot of people criticize mm. that study because it was just in one location. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, this is now going to be a global study oh, wow. in three different locations. It might, it might end up being more than that, but there's three right now that I know of. Looking at sort of resource poor settings, middle income and high income, mm. comparing outcomes that way. So uh, oh, wow. keep an eye out for that. It's yeah, going to be very absolutely. interesting. No, that'll be fantastic because I know... The Way Forward Project included that and some other mm -hmm. things. Um, I forget that was at 11, probably. Yep. Um, and uh, yeah, so there's been some great follow-ups and conversations around that um, that have been very, very influential. Um, we'll have links to those on the on the pot, on the show notes as well. Um, the last question: What one person? And again, if there's a representative person, um, if I think you have one person that has most impacted your thinking on how we can love orphaned and at-risk children with excellence. 
Yeah, for me, I, it goes back to the beginning story that I told. It was this little girl, Mariana, who lived in this migrant camp. And she shared her little jelly bracelet with me. It was blue, clear plastic. And I wore it that whole week. And I still have it in this little treasured treasure box. And for me, her face always comes up. Is this face of this little face pressed against this fence. Being the only adult at age 11, adult, you know, caring for all these children in this migrant camp. She was one year away from going to work in the fields. Um, with, And she has a family. I, I'm not saying she didn't have a family. But her life was um, so limited and she clearly craved attention, love, support. These kids were just clinging on us. They clearly didn't have enough of what they needed. And they were sort of trapped in this camp-like setting. And um, it was, for me, her face just always appears, no matter how much of, how many rock stars I hear from that are passionate about orphan care. Um, and no matter how many famous people I've met sort of on this journey, that little girl really sticks for me as that children need love and care and attention and they can have as much food she had plenty of food but she just these kids weren't getting quite the care and love and attention they needed um and so uh, she's kept me very passionate and I still have that little bracelet and so she's very representative for me of um, my own personal passion that children and families need to be supported absolutely well thanks so much Amanda I you know we'll have to we'll have to have a part three four five six of this conversation and um, cause I know there's so much more to talk about and hopefully we'll be able to continue to work together for many years to come. So thanks again. Great. Thank you so much. Keep an eye out for our funding report that's coming out. It will follow it up with some positive stories as well about faith-based groups doing really transformative work in Haiti. And so first part will be a bit about funding and the next part will be a bit about a, some of the positive changes that we're seeing. So keep an eye out for it. Thanks again, Amanda, for that uh, wisdom that you were able to share with us. And I just hope that all of you out there uh, were able to uh, just really learn as much as I did from Amanda. And, uh, you know, the one thing I forgot to talk about at the beginning of the episode, which is probably the most important thing we're going to talk about today, is it was Karen's birthday yesterday. So (laughs) if all you out there just want to, in your own, wherever you are, just sing happy birthday to Karen. I know that will mean a lot to her. If you want to record it and send it to her, that will even mean even more. But, you know, with with that, Karen, as you're hearing all these people singing to you and encouraging you through that, what what are you, uh, what do you think about Amanda and what, what, what really stuck out to you? Oh, Phil, you're so hilarious. Thank you so much for the birthday wishes. Um, You know, I really, really enjoyed the interview that you had with Amanda. So relevant, so needed, her perspective and um, just her wisdom and intelligence surrounding these topics. And it's not just um, kind of an up in the air or theoretical intelligence. It's, It's she's on the ground. She knows what she's talking about. And so much of what she was saying in Haiti was just sounded so familiar um, to the time that I lived in um, Uganda. And it was just sounded so very familiar with the coercion and just what happens in local communities, unfortunately, and what that looks like when Americans get involved, especially from um, faith-based organizations and churches. And, and we get involved and we think that we're doing such great things and we think that we're raising money and sending funds to do these wonderful things for children in impoverished areas. And ultimately what we end up doing is continuing the cycle and, and actually even like creating it, creating opportunities for more corruption. And so one of the things that really stood out for me was when she just, I think, really blatantly and bluntly, but also humbly said, you know, encouraging people on this side on 
on our sides um, in America to believe what we hear. You know, when I was connected, and I still am connected to several different organizations in Uganda, but when I was on the ground living over there, that was one of the biggest things that, um, especially some of the secular organizations just had such a, a desire for was for education and even just getting the word back to the United States of, hey, here is what is real. Here is what is really happening. Please believe this about this or that. And, and please let's let's kind of rally and send money towards things that are actually helpful for children and families. Yeah, and that's something that's really important to remember as we're doing any work anywhere really is, you know, our great intentions are not enough. And you've heard that. Like in, in most people going anywhere have really good intentions. And it's something that it's not like we're going, hey, I want to give a bunch of money and it's going to be, you know, swindled away. I mean, that's not what anyone is saying or wanting to do. And it's not a condemnation of anyone either. It's just a, hey, we need to be wide, eyes wide open as we're going places. And and I, I hope that people going on trips and going different places aren't just completely discouraged and paralyzed and feeling totally offended when you hear, oh, you're if you've ever worn a t-shirt on a plane that was, you know, maybe neon or something like that with a lot of, we've all seen that. And we probably, you know, not all we've of us have all done, done it. <laughs> I've done it. You know, it wasn't neon. It was navy blue, but it still had a, you know, and my daughter and I went on a trip and we, you know, and you know what? It was something that it wasn't a terrible thing that we were doing that, you know, but it could be destructive, right? You know, that's something that what we're hearing and what we know now after learning is that, you know, as Brian Fickard said, you know, you're not going to save the world in a week. You're not going to change too many lives in a week. Um, but you are going, you could potentially do a lot of destruction in a week. And that's something that we really need to be thinking about. And you might not, you know, you're not going to save the world with a hundred dollar check, but you could do some destruction with that too, you know, and, and whatever. So that's something to really remember. And that's something I think Amanda brought home. And this study that Troy Livesay, when he was on the show, talked about this study. And I know a couple other people have talked about this study and it's really is something that if you're doing work anywhere, read this study about trafficking and the connection of, you know, trafficking Haiti's invisible children, as, as they talked about, it's, it's really something to, to read. It's something to understand it. As she said, it is very accessible. It's not your typical study where you read it and your eyes glaze over and you're like, what in the world am I reading? This is actually very much accessible for anyone. So yeah. So, so what else, Karen? Yeah, that's a relevant point too. And I, I like that she very clearly articulated a lot of times. I think, um, you know, we get stuck in a, a place where we think of trafficking and really all we're, maybe we are go to, or the only thing we're thinking of is like trafficking related to, um, sexual exploitation of children, but trafficking really is just the movement of a child for any exploitation. And I love how she tied that back to what does this actually look like when children are, are being exploited by staying in institutionalized settings, that's simply creating an environment where, um, orphanage directors get really, really, really wealthy. And so it was great that she pointed that out as well. I think too, you know, some of the same things that we've heard over and over again in the past several months and even so much in last season of just that emphasis on making sure that we're aware of and even thinking about like, what are the best practices globally and how is what we are doing or thinking about doing, how is this culturally relevant? And I just don't think we can ever be reminded of that too much. And so I think the way that she talks about those things is super helpful. And just those general reminders of we've got to be aware of the setting that we're in, the culture that we're in and, and humbly approaching, um, 
problems in different cultures in a way that helps unite and, and get everyone on board and um, just is super respectful of that culture. Yeah. And that, and you know, it's just really, these conversations remind me of, uh, something I saw this last week. It was, it was uh, Rebecca Knepp who has been on the show a couple times and with connected.org are producing some phenomenal materials. And they just came out with a, a really a guide for short term and, you know, missions engagement. And, um, you know, actually something that Craig Greenfield said in a, in a post, I think it was a tweet. He, he said, uh, something along the lines of let's stop calling short term missions that, cause it really isn't what it is. It's not to have a mission isn't short term. And that was something that, you know, he said that was an interesting comment. But again, it's just be thinking about these issues. It's not to say he's right, we're wrong, anybody else is wrong, we're right. It's to be thinking and engaging these issues deeply. I'm going to have the, the link to um, Connected.org's short-term missions engagement. Uh, it's, it's really a step-by-step uh you know, document that you can go through online and engage online that I, I encourage people to check out. Um, and then, you know, so, so yeah, it's just something that I want to really encourage you all out there to engage these issues. Also with Providence, we're creating a, uh, in the process of creating a missions team handbook and, and child protection policies that we have on our say, if, if that's something that you need, you know, uh, let me know and we can, we can get you a copy of that so you can have a, a guide to really, to really follow that. It's so important to have these things in place so that these children are protected. And so the, so the corruption has the least amount of chance to actually stick and, and to happen. So those are things that when those policies and procedures are in place, it helps. It's not going to make sure everything doesn't happen. Something still could happen, but it, it really reduces the possibility a lot more than if you're just kind of flying blind in these situations. Yeah, you know, I want to add to that real quick. Um, I have a recommendation too. It's very, I think, relevant. Um, I don't know if you're familiar with, or maybe some of our listeners are familiar with an Instagram. Um, I don't even know the right term. I'm so social media illiterate, Phil. Um, Someone on Instagram, it's called Barbie Savior. And um, she actually contributed to a pamphlet as well um, for how to communicate how to, how to communicate, um, to the world, a social media guide for volunteers and travelers. And it's a really, really great, it's really short. It's a great little pamphlet and it just kind of highlights how we can be, um, traveling cross-culturally and promoting dignity, gaining informed consent, really questioning our intentions of even posting pictures and then, um, using our opportunities through social media to bring down stereotypes. And so I think if we could link that as well, that would be very helpful. Yeah, we'll definitely put that on the on the show notes as well. So yeah, these are these are all ways that we can engage these issues better. And just to, again, be eyes wide open, go into this with a deeper understanding of these issues, which will hopefully help us to engage better. Not again be paralyzed with fear and that we're going to mess up, but to hopefully go in to whatever we're doing. And it's not necessarily going on a trip, you know. And in fact, that may be the worst thing you could do. Um, it may be something that you're called to do and you're supposed to do. But you know, again, if you do do that be very careful in how, how you're doing it to make sure that it's a, a mutual relationship and not one that you think you're going in as the savior, not one that you're going in. And really, you know, again, when helping hurts is something we've talked about a lot on this show and that's for a reason. It, it's got the principles that are so important to understand and know. If you haven't listened to that episode with Brian Fickert a few weeks ago, I, I very strongly recommend you go and listen to that as well. So any last thoughts before we move on to the recommendation? 
No, I think it was just a really great interview. I think she did a great job of highlighting not only kind of some of the things that um, I had just mentioned about the corruption, but also she talks about there's some really good, great places as well. And she highlighted those as in green institutions, but understanding that even in the best settings, um, children still thrive in a family based environment. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. So that, that brings us to the, uh, the recommendation time where I have a recommendation for you all out there today. It's a little lighter than the one, the, the ones that, uh, um, Amanda gave us during her interview, the studies and the, uh, those Bucharest in early intervention product project and the faith action resources are fantastic resources. So I do strongly recommend that you, you read those. They'll give you a deep insight into the, the importance of family and, uh, really the, the potential dangers of institutions. Um, but this book is by Jonathan Golden and Jonathan's going to be on the show here in, in a, in a few months. And, uh, he has a book that's called Be You, Do Good. And, you know, this is something that is interesting with the do good. It made me think of Isaiah 1 where, you know, it says learn to do good. And then it says bring justice to the fatherless and plead the widow's cause, you know. So when, when I hear do good, I think of it in the biblical context is that is what God is calling us to do, to really help the oppressed, help the poor, help the sick, help the orphan, encourage them, love them, advocate for them because they often don't have that. And so what he's talking about in this book really is to find and pursue your calling. And, you know, it, it takes a few, you know, a couple hundred pages and it still doesn't answer the question fully because that's something that's between you and God, but it really is something that makes it clear that it's a nuanced question with nuanced answers that it's, I always call the, the calling question. You know, my, my sister-in-law once asked me, what, how do I know my calling Phil? And I asked, I, I answered it with, you know, it's really a level four question. You know, you can't just skip to it. You have to go through levels one, two, three to get there really. And that's understanding yourself, understanding who God's created to be really become intimate with God. And then when you hear his voice, you'll know his voice and he will lead you and you will be able to be guided by that. But it's not something you can just skip to that without really understanding all those things. So, you know, with that, before, before we go, Karen, do you have anything to add to that or any way to tell me I'm wrong on that? No, I was just, um, giving you the big thumbs up and shaking my head. That was a great, 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 great statement. Wow. I got a few greats on that. So I'm pretty excited about that. So that, Mm -hmm. that's something out there. If you didn't think it was that good, well, you just go back and Karen and you're (laughs) obviously wrong because she's always right. So, um, so with that out there, I, I'm so encouraged by this episode, as, as I often and usually am with these different guests we have. And, um, you know, I just pray that you take all that you're learning with this, this episode and everything else you've learned on the show and everything else you're learning out there and you take it to you to really help you to understand how you can love orphan and at-risk children more and more and better and better each and every day. Thanks a lot. Have a great week. We hope you've enjoyed today's Think Orphan podcast. For all the information in this week's podcast, please visit us at thinkorphan.com. You too can be part of the conversation. Send your questions to info at thinkorphan.com or join us on the Think Orphan Facebook page. Thanks for listening, and we hope you'll join us again on the next edition of Think Orphan.